Today is Pentecost Sunday. This is the anniversary of the birth of the church, not quite 2,000 years ago. It is a day that we Christians ought to celebrate because without the birth of the church, we would not know Jesus Christ as Savior. We would not be a family together. We would not have the expectation of the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. So this is an important day for Christians to celebrate. That's why we wanted you to see that video today as we're talking about the, the church. We are a people who enjoy being comfortable. Uh, when the service is over here in a few minutes, you'll climb into your car, you'll put your key in the ignition, you'll hit the key, it'll spark right off, you'll buzz down your windows. By the way, you realize most of the kids here at church have never hand-cranked a window in their life. <laughs> that that most, most car companies, it's, it's all automatic windows anymore. You'll buzz down the windows, you'll adjust your power mirrors and seats, and away you'll go. But it has not always been so comfortably easy to go to church. Let's suppose you lived 85 years ago, you just bought a brand new uh, 1928 Model A Ford, and you were getting ready to go to church on a Sunday morning. Well, that is the dash of a Model A. Now, let me show you how you start a Model A car. There is, uh, here's some figures. You've got several different things. You've got two levers on the right and left side of the steering column. One is the spark advance, and the other is the throttle. This series is full throttle. Uh, there's your throttle on the right-hand side. Make sure both of those are in their up positions. That means the spark is completely retarded, and the throttle is at lowest speed. You put the key in the ignition, you turn it, which only completes the circuit. It doesn't do anything other than that. You reach over to uh, underneath the dash, and there's a valve under there that you turn to make sure the gas starts flowing. You don't leave it uh, flowing all the time because you don't want any dangers. Then you reach to the far side. There's a little knob there that twists this way and pulls this way. To twist it is adjusting the mixture, right amount of gas and right amount of air, so you make sure you have the mixture set right. Then you pull it out to choke the engine on the floor, which you can't see, but up there on the floor, there is a starter switch. And so you hit the starter switch with your foot, you pull with your right hand on the choke, your other hand is on the spark retard uh, or advance lever, and when the engine fires, you immediately pull the spark lever all the way down to full. You let go of the, the uh, choke, you let off of the emergency brake, you put the car into gear, and you give it full throttle, and away you go. <laughs> about 40 miles an hour. Now, a, a Model A would go about 55 at top speed, but I wouldn't recommend driving one at that top speed with those old mechanical brakes. And you say, I know what some of you are saying, man, if that's what I had to do every time I wanted to leave, I just wouldn't go anyplace. Maybe that speaks to our addiction for comfort. Unfortunately, that same comfort expectation has crept into our spiritual lives. When we look at what it takes to reach out to someone else relationally, we're just as likely to conclude, if I have to do all of that to introduce somebody to Jesus, I just won't. I just won't go. I'll just be content to stay right here. Can I remind you that that attitude was never a part of the early church? That that kind of a, a spirit of, I, that's uncomfortable to me, so I won't do it. That that attitude was unknown in the first century church. And if anybody, if anybody had a reason to hang on to that attitude, it was the apostle Peter given the experience that he had as recorded in Acts chapter 10. If anybody could have said, that's way out of my comfort zone, that's beyond comfortable to me, I'm not doing it. It was Peter in Acts chapter 10. So let me set the stage for Acts chapter 10 this morning. 
Now, last Sunday, we talked about the fact that thousands in Jerusalem accepted the Lord and Savior uh, as, as, their, uh, as their Lord and Savior in the early days of the church. As a matter of fact, the church grew from 3,000 to 5,000, and they stopped counting. But it wasn't long, however, before the courage of the early church to share the gospel came at the cost of their lives. We talked about last week in chapter 7 that Stephen became the first to die for his faith, but that only served to fan the flames of spiritual passion in the Christians and spiritual persecution among the opponents of the church. Now this morning we come to chapter 8. A major persecution erupts in Jerusalem. So much so that the Bible says only the apostles stayed there, everybody else scattered throughout the region. Now, I'm sure the church remained in a nucleus form in, in Jerusalem, but thousands literally scattered. Philip is a preacher, and he's one that scattered. And Philip went to Samaria. Now, we read through Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. We just kind of gloss over things. Do not gloss over this. That had to be way beyond his comfort. I mean, Philip went to a place that nobody went to. As a matter of fact, when Jewish people went from Judea to Galilee, they crossed over, went over there on the other side of the Jordan River and back into Galilee this way so they wouldn't have to walk through Samaria. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. The Jews were hated by the Samaritans. And the reason for their hatred is this. The Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile, and that just irritated the Jews to no end. And so there was an intense hatred between the two. Philip goes to Samaria and starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, the Samaritans accept it. The Samaritans are baptized. And when word reaches Jerusalem, that had to be a hard pill for some of the Jewish believers to swallow. Really, Lord? Samaritans in the church? Seriously? Perhaps now they had a better understanding of what Jesus said before he left this earth. He said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. They may have thought originally when he said that he was just speaking generally, but specifically, now they know. No, the Samaritans are included. Then Philip meets up with an Ethiopian on his way back to Africa. And he preaches to him about Jesus, and this is what happened next. Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then both Philip and the eunuch went into the water, and Philip baptized him. And the Bible says that when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and the Ethiopian didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Suddenly, folks, the, the gospel now, the church has now moved out of the Judean area, and is on its way to Africa. This is the first Christian convert in Africa. And he's rejoicing. He goes back, and don't you know that he took with him that which made him rejoice. Chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus is the most notorious persecutor of the church. He is a man of impeccable Jewish heritage and great knowledge of God's Word and passionate in his devotion for God and fanatical in his defense of God by stamping out this heretical group called the church. If ever a man was sincere in what he was doing, it was Saul from the city of Tarsus. 
He and a group of temple guards are on their way in chapter 9 from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back in chains. On the road, somewhere along that road, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, meets Jesus Christ. It is a blinding light. It, it is the exposure to Jesus, the light of the world. And then just imagine for a minute, a thousand camera flashes going off in your eyes all at one time. And this light is brighter than that. And he falls, and, and Jesus speaks to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, uh, and he says, well, who are you that I can know? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. And he goes on, they have this conversation, and the soldiers have to lead him into the city where he, now don't overlook this, where he spends the next three days not eating or drinking, just praying. Have you, have you noticed how often the three-day thing crops up in Scripture? And all of it seems to tie back into the concept of the three days of Jesus after his death before the resurrection. Just as Jesus had been in the darkness of the tomb for three days, so God leaves Saul in the darkness of his confusion for three days before he gives him an answer. At the same time that Saul is praying, God sends a dream to Ananias, a disciple who lives there in Damascus. And he says, Ananias, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus and talk to him and help him become a Christian. <laughs> Ananias, I think, is my favorite guy in this story because here's a guy, he's just an average Joe. He's just your common, ordinary, uh, garden variety disciple of Jesus Christ. And God says, I want you to go see the terrorist and lead him to Christ. And Ananias had to say, Lord, really? Are you, are you sure you got the right man? Ananias goes. And in chapter 9, verse 17, it says, Then Ananias went into the house, and, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength and Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Wow! The most feared opponent of the church has suddenly become a convert to Jesus Christ and will become the most ardent evangelist of all history. What in the world is God up to? I mean, first it's the Samaritans, and then the gospel goes to Africa, and now Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor. What can God do to eclipse that? Chapter 10. <laughs> Actually, for everyone in this room this morning, this ought to be your favorite chapter of Acts. If I were to come in some Sunday morning and say, what's your favorite chapter in Acts? Every hand ought to go up and every voice ought to say, chapter 10 is my favorite chapter. The story is so powerful, so life-changing, that Luke, the author of Acts, focuses on this event three times. Ch chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 15. The story is the longest single narrative in the entire book of Acts, running 66 verses from the start of Acts 10 through Peter's defense of his actions in Acts 11. Some call it the second Pentecost. Some call it the Gentile Pentecost. Even Peter himself compares the conversion of Cornelius to the event that birthed the church on the Jewish holiday, Pentecost, what we saw in the video just a little bit ago. Now, what you've got to realize is that this is about 10 years later. And you say, well, who is this Cornelius guy? Cornelius was a Roman centurion stationed in Caesarea. He was a devout man, a God-fearing man, who genuinely sought for God's will in his life. He was a generous man, benevolent man. 
He was just a really good guy. Even the Jewish people in the synagogue there in Caesarea had high regard for for, uh, Cornelius because he helped them so very much. During his time of prayer one afternoon at 3 o'clock, an angel appears to Cornelius, and this is what happens. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And so Cornelius immediately sent these men to get Peter. Well, the next day, just before these guys arrived, Peter's on the rooftop in the homes there where they, people often spent time on the rooftops, and it's about noon, and he's hungry, and he falls into a vision or a trance. And in this vision, God lets down a sheet uh, sort of held up by the four corners, and on this sheet are the most disgusting animals Peter can think of. There are unclean mammals, there are reptiles, there are birds of prey, all the things that the Old Testament says, you cannot eat these animals. And the voice in the vision says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, nothing doing. I've never eaten these animals before, I'm not going to start now. And then the voice says, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. Again, three times the vision happens. There's that number three again. And uh, after the third time, the sheet goes back up into heaven, and there is a knock at the door, and Peter goes and answers the door, and there are these representatives from Cornelius, and they say, are you Peter? Come with us to speak to Cornelius. Now, can I tell you that from the vision to the knock at the door, this is way beyond comfortable for Peter? Because Peter knows that you don't have Gentiles into your home and you don't go into a Gentile home. You don't even associate with Gentiles. If there was anybody that was more despicable than a Samaritan, it was a Gentile, a Roman, especially a soldier. Peter invites them into his home because of what God had shown him. This is the first time Peter's had Gentiles into his house. And they spend the night, and the next day they leave for Caesarea. When they arrive at the house, Peter enters the house. Cornelia met him, this is in verse 25 of chapter 10, and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Cornelius had gathered all of his friends and family together, and he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Do you realize that this is Peter's confession of his own bias and prejudice? This is a tough thing to do. This is Peter saying, you know, I've been prejudiced against you folks in the past. I'm sorry. God has taught me something different. And then Peter says, may I ask why you sent for me? And they told him. And in that crowded room, Peter took the opportunity to preach and teach about the resurrection. And as he's talking, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and all in the room who heard, and they miraculously began to speak in unlearned languages. These are languages known around the world, but languages these these have not learned. It's the very same thing that happened 10 years earlier on the day of Pentecost, and Peter is astonished, and those who are with Peter are astonished. And then in chapter 10, verse 46, it said, then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Folks, history changed that moment. History has never been the same from that moment on. 
And it's interesting to me that after Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, the great apostle Paul, becomes the dominant figure of Acts in the rest of the New Testament. And it's interesting to me that after Acts 10, we never read about Cornelius again. And yet both are essential to our story. Without Cornelius, the church would have remained exclusively Jewish. And without the great apostle Paul, the gospel might have remained confined to the Middle East. You see, Paul was the very first one to take the gospel to the European continent from which we get our faith. We are here this morning because of these two men. Had it not been for this moment in history, had it not been for this experience, had it not been for this second Pentecost, you and I would not be here. Now, unfortunately, throughout history, the church has sometimes been resistant to those who don't look like, talk like, or think exactly like us. Maybe that explains why there are literally hundreds of denominations of Christianity that span the globe. For some in the church, the idea of being with others of different backgrounds, culture, or race is way beyond comfortable. I must tell you, I've never understood that. I am a better person when I'm exposed to others in the kingdom from around the world, their faith and experience challenges my faith and experience. Their struggles remind me to be grateful for God's blessing and to challenge me to be more sacrificial and courageous in my own living. This congregation, we as a body of believers, is stronger and I believe better prepared for the future every time somebody from a different country, a different race, a different language, or a different background, walks through these doors, sits in our midst, and worships God with us here. When we don't realize that God's family is greater than any of us, we're in a world of hurt. And we can learn a lot from Peter, who went way beyond comfortable to make sure that we could be a part of the kingdom. After all, folks, the living Lord whom I serve spent his life quite differently from me. We do not share a common heritage. Jesus was Jewish. I am Gentile. We do not share a common language. Language can be such a barrier. He spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. I speak pretty much exclusively English. A few years ago, uh, when Elsie and I were uh, at TCM in Austria working with the mission there, we had one day to visit the, the city of Vienna. So we were in town with our map and our tourist book, and, and we were looking for a particular building. I don't remember which one it was, but we couldn't seem to find it. And the map was a little bit confusing, or maybe it was the map reader that was confused. And we saw another couple who were also tourists because they had their tour book out and, and were reading. And so I approached them and I said, do you know where this particular building is? And the gentleman said, well, I think, and then he looked at his book, and he started to tell me from the description, and then he said, well, here, you just read it for yourself, and he handed me his tour book, and it was all written in Hebrew, <laughs> and I didn't, he'd been so gracious, I didn't have the heart to tell him, I don't read Hebrew, so I stood there and tried to read through it and nodded a couple times, <laughs> handed the book back to him and said, thank you very much, and they went on, and Elsa and I were still as lost as we had been when I asked the question the first time. I studied Hebrew to be able to translate the Old Testament. I just don't speak it. And suddenly I found myself at a barrier with very gracious people. You see, language can be a barrier. Jesus spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. I don't. 
The Lord and I do not share a common race. He is Semitic. I am Caucasian. I guess what I'm trying to say, tell you is that I, I, I don't have a thing in common with Jesus from an earthly standpoint. Different race, different language, different culture, different heritage. But I can tell you this this morning, that he is the most important figure in my life. There is no one equal to him. You see, folks, it, not one color is more desirable than another. One race is not more loved by God, nor more needed in the church, nor more anticipated in heaven. All of us, all of us, however, do share one thing in common. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And it makes no difference whether you are male or female, red, yellow, black, or white, poor or rich, formally educated or experienced educated, handsome or homely, athletic or clumsy, popular or unpopular, liberal or conservative, we are all lost without a Savior. And in this church, we are all family because of His grace, regardless of where you came from, regardless of your native language, regardless of the color of your skin, or regardless of your heritage. We are family in Christ. And He welcomes the foreigner. And aren't you glad? Because, you see, I'm the foreigner. Unless you are of Jewish birth and a Christian, you are also the foreigner. We have been grafted into his tree, and I will be eternally thankful. Well, here's some quick lessons uh, this morning. Sincerity is not enough. No one has been more sincere in his faith and efforts than Cornelius, but sincerity is not enough. If sincerity was sufficient, then salvation would based on, be based on us. I'm sincere enough, therefore I'm going to be saved. Look at me, how great I am. And you can be sincerely wrong. Saul of Tarsus was. He was sincere about his persecution of the church, but God showed him, Saul, that's not the way. And I'm grateful that Saul became the great apostle Paul. If someone is earnest and heartfelt today, that's considered enough. In our current society, sincerity carries the day. Let me say that insincerity in the Christian life is vital. Don't I, but, but, you know, sincerity isn't enough, but it is vital. There's, there's two sides to this coin. To be insincere as a Christian is to be hypocritical, and hypocrisy is demeaning to you, to the church, and to the Lord. And I believe that an insincere and inconsistent Christian is one of the greatest detriments to somebody coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So I've, I've got an assignment for you this week, just like we had last week. Here's one of your first assignments this week, and that is to take a personal inventory of your life with regard to your own hypocrisy. You know, be honest with yourself. This is not for Facebook. This is not for put, you know, sending an email out there. But this is just simply to take a look. Where am I living inconsistent? Most of the time we know. But even if you're confused, find somebody in your family that you trust, find a good friend that you trust that won't beat up on you, but will be honest with you and say, where am I being inconsistent? Here's the deal. Because if you're being a hypocrite in your faith, how can you be leading anybody else to know Christ when you don't practice what you preach? Because they'll remind you of that very quickly. So before you can help reach out to somebody, straighten up what's going on in your own life. Suppose someone has a crooked stick but sincerely believes it's straight. 
You can tell they're convinced. To simply argue with that person that their stick is crooked won't do any good because they believe it's straight. And to denounce their stick as a crooked stick, that's a bad stick, that's going to make them mad because they think the stick is straight. But if you place a truly straight stick alongside the crooked one, the truth becomes obvious. If your life is like a crooked stick, how can you ever help somebody else find the straight and narrow way in Christ? Be sincere, but be sincere for the right and lasting reasons. It's not enough, but it is important. And goodness is not enough. I would take as many men and women like Cornelius as God would send to this congregation. A man of reverence, a man of generosity to those in need, a man of prayer, a man of obedience, a man of integrity, a man of influence, a man of action. You won't find a better man on the face of the earth than Cornelius, but Cornelius wasn't good enough. You see, being good enough is never good enough. I know who folks, folks who assuage their guilt by not going to church by saying, I'm better than so-and-so, and he claims to be a Christian. And the truth of the matter is sometimes they're right. They are. They do live act, and act better than some people I know in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't matter. Being good enough isn't good enough. Only one sin separates us from God. And, and if we could be good enough, there would be another call for arrogance, patting ourselves on the back. Look, I'm good enough that God is going to take me home. It's not about us and our goodness. Our mission is to help others find the one who is good enough. So you see, sincerity is not enough and goodness is not enough, but God is sincerely good enough, and that is our hope. And, and remember this, God does not show favoritism. In Acts chapter 10, Peter said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God wants any and all to come to him through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to stop and think for just a moment. Who is the person you would feel most uncomfortable being in a room with, just the two of you? If you can't picture that, then let me put it a little bit more bluntly. Who is it that you like the least? Who is it you dislike intensely in this world? And think about the person that just, the thought of being with that person just unnerves you, and, and you're putting a room together. Who would that be? Okay, you got it in your mind? Now, here's the thing. Do you realize this morning that God loves that person as much as he loves you? That's sometimes a little bit hard for us to get, but God loves that person as much as he loves us. Sometimes we think, well, of course God wants me in his kingdom, and he does. God does want us in his kingdom, but no more than he wants the homeless, the drug addict, the prostitute, the white-collar criminal, you name it, everybody out there God wants. You see, Jesus died for everybody. Now, some people don't accept the pardon, but the pardon has been offered. It's with, with God, it's never either or. It's always been and always will be both and. So, God does not show favoritism. We ought not to either. Last thing, God is not always predictable. The most notorious anti-Christian crusader becomes the great apostle Paul. <laughs> Who would have predicted that? The most frightening encounter in church history is handed to an average disciple by the name of Ananias who goes and becomes a hero of the faith. Who would have predicted that? After hundreds of years of distinguishing between clean and unclean food, God uses dirty animals to teach Peter that people are clean folks. Who would have predicted that? God not only chooses a Roman to open the door to the church, of the church to the rest of the world, but a Roman soldier a Roman centurion hated by the Jews for occupying their land. A centurion like the one that stood at the foot of the cross and said, truly, 
this man was the son of God. There's nothing in the Bible to indicate it. There's nothing in history to indicate it. I've just always wondered in the back of my mind, was it Cornelius that stood at the foot of the cross? Earlier in the service, Xuan Li played a, a classical piece during the communion time, if you were listening. I didn't know she was, what she was going to play. I knew she was playing this morning. I didn't know what she was going to play. She chose a song written, composed by Bach. You know what the name of the song is? Now Comes the Gentile Savior. Here on Pentecost Sunday, when we're talking about us being in the kingdom, God just brings all the little details together. That's, that's, just, that's just so God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the changeless one, but he's never the predictable one. So keep your eyes open and watch for his work in your life. Get beyond comfortable, folks. You never know when God will have an Ananias-sized job for you to do or a Cornelius-sized need for you to meet. He might just send you to the most unlikely person ever, and if he does, you go after him full throttle.